All right, welcome everybody. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to pick it up at around verse 19. But put your finger in Ephesians chapter 1 because it plays into what we're going to talk about. And we're going to talk about some pretty interesting things uh, we discovered. But as usual, we begin with a word of prayer. We'll sing a passage from Scripture set to music. And then we sit in silence for a couple minutes to reflect upon our relationship with God uh, through Christ. So uh, grateful that you're here uh, in the live studio church and then those of you who are watching from home. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this time and for life. We are grateful for your uh, benevolence and love and care. We know that you have our best interest at, at heart and in mind when you allow things and move and we just pray that we will be uh, cognizant of your presence in our lives. We pray that you will help us to move forward in faith and that we will be able to exercise uh, love toward people, uh, all people, and that we will be known by that love. We come together to study your word because as our faith increases, so does our capacity to love. So increase our faith, Lord. Forgive us for the things that are not correct. We are imperfect and we seek to understand you better. But uh, we just uh, pause for this minute to thank you to, for the beginning, for your spirit that will be here with us for this short time that we're together uh, now. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying...
Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will find no means into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so uh, you might want to put your finger in uh, First Corinthians. I mean, excuse me, First uh, Corinthians. Yes, First Corinthians chapter eleven, but also Ephesians chapter one. We're going to get to that in a second. We left off last week covering verses seventeen and uh, through nineteen. Paul uh, uh, broaches a new topic uh, about the church. It's about their behaviors relative to um, bringing division within the within the group. And uh, this was not to be, but at the same time, we left off with Paul saying at verse 19, but we know there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you, which kind of means 
there's going to be things that come up within uh, the body at that time and even today where they're not going to be right, they're going to be difficult, and it, they will serve to sort of show who is a seeker of God and spirit and truth and who is not. And we talked about this before, wrapping it up last week, that even Paul admits within the church bride these things would exist, these difficulties. And uh, I think it's fascinating and something we all need to remember in this world where we love unconditionally, even within ourselves, there are going to things will come up that are not necessarily going to be good or true or right. And, uh, and, and, but we love unconditionally, we grow together, and we, those who are really seekers will discover the truth of things over time. So, um, okay, so now Paul lays out the next problem he wants to address, and uh, what happens when they are having communion? and which is the celebration of Jesus' death. What it means, not the celebration, but the memory of his death. What's going on? We're not going to spend a lot of time on this for the very simple reason that I don't believe uh, it applies contextually to us, and we're going to discuss that. How can I say it? Well, we're going to get a, a, a sense of it right now. Let's read our text for today from 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 20. Paul says, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating everyone takes before another his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not, verse 23, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. That'll be our last verse, I think, for today. So I am convinced under the apostolic direction and the abundance of the Holy Spirit working miracles that the bride of the New Testament was under some really stern obligation to remain sanctified and holy and uh, pure in their faith in Christ and in their walk. And that is why the text of the New Testament, uh, apostolically, apostolically driven, is so on them remaining pure as a body. I'm simultaneously convinced that with Christ coming as promised, and having had victory over all things, the focus of our faith is no longer on his death solely, uh, but it's on also his resurrection, and now his total victory and his reigning over the universe. And so while we certainly remember his death and his resurrection, uh, we see him as Lord God and King because he lived 
perfectly because he submitted himself to death unjustly and then rose from the grave. And the culmination of that age was his return with justice to his own, with reward and with salvation for his bride. And now we remember all of these things about him as our Lord and Savior, God and King. So because there's a differentiation between believers in the bride then and believers in the body ever since, Paul makes it clear that the saints of his day were to partake of these elements that were focused on his death alone, partake of these until he returned. Now, in Ephesus, in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 1, we come upon some verses. This is going to blow your mind, those of you uh, who are interested in what the Word has to say. They say some really interesting thing about what God is doing among the saints and the apostles who are over them. And for many, these passages are some of the most troubling in the New Testament when it comes to the idea of free will. We, so as we read together, these are like really, really important passages when it comes to being predestined uh, by God or not being predestined and being in free will uh, or not. And I want to take a minute and read with you because Paul says something here that relates to the topic of communion. And, and so if we put them together, it's going to help our study of what's happening at Corinth. Because there are nine verses of head of the verse I want to get to where Paul is going to address the communion. I want to start at verse 1 of Ephesians 1 and we'll learn together. Stay with me and read this together because if you do, you're going to have your eyes opened to something that most uh, five-point Calvinists do not see. Most people don't see when they read the Bible today, so let's read it. He starts off in Ephesians 1.1 and says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Jesus Christ. And that's a standard opening for Paul. Then verse 2, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't need to say any more. He says it plainly right there. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, when we read that today, we think the us is talking about us. We automatically assign ourselves to, Paul is speaking to us. I'm reading it. It must be to me. This is the first us here in these verses. Now, you're going to notice us, Paul referring to us, us, us throughout these first uh, verses. Stay with me because most think us means me. Okay? In many ways, us could mean us in this first one, because God, we know, does bless us with spiritual blessings from heavenly places. So, yeah, there's an application there. But that was not the context. It's not talking about them either. That us represents something else. It's true, when Paul writes us here, he's speaking either of the apostles alone. Every time you see us here in, in Ephesians, he's speaking to us alone, meaning the apostles, or he's speaking to any Jew that converted to Christianity. I'm going to prove that to you, and it's really important to what we're talking about. So, when he's, it's either 
to Jews who converted to Christ or it's to the apostles. It could be an and or. So every time we read us in the next several verses, Paul is distinguishing his audience. He is writing about an us group and he is writing about a them group or you group. Us and you. You ready? So stay with me and I'll make you, you'll be more capable of understanding this first uh, chapter than most uh, uh, ardent predestinational guys. Okay? So he goes on in verse 4, speaking of God, and he says, According as he, God the Father, has chosen us. So there's another one. God the Father has chosen us. We read that and then we say, Oh, God the Father has chosen us. It's to me. He says, According as he, God the Father, has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Okay, so we read that, and that describes, that describes me, we say. No, Paul was not speaking of Gentile converts there. He was speaking about the, remember, him, either the apostles and or Jews who had converted. I'll prove it in a second. Now, again, most people read that referring us to themselves or the we to themselves. It's not. God has chosen in himself before the foundation of the world either the apostles or the Jews who converted to Christ that they should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 5, having predestined us, there's the third time, the apostles of the converted Jews, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, wherein he has made us, again, the apostles or the Jewish converts, accepted in the beloved, in whom we... Again, the apostles or the Jewish converts have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. That's about the fifth time he's used us, or we, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he had purposed in himself. Okay, you got those first nine verses? He's established an us group there. And when we read it today, we say, well, that means me. I was predestined before the foundation of the world. la da yada 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 And there's others who aren't. Improper. How do we know that? Uh, go on to verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times... He, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Verse 10 tells us the reason why God had chosen and predestined the apostles and or the converted Jews to Christ of that time, the us's and the we's in the first nine verses, that Paul is referring to, God has chosen them in the dispensation of the fullness of times that he, God, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. The dispensation of the fullness of times is a phrase that has been misread and misinterpreted and used by all sorts of uh, people, religious groups, and most of them think that dispensation of the fullness of time speaks of the time that Jesus was born on out to today. 
That's what they call the dispensation of the fullness of times. Not so. The word translated to dispensation is oikonomia in the Greek. And it's a word we're familiar with because it sounds very much like economy to us. It also is, could be used as an administration to us. So, and it speaks to a master plan anciently where the head of a house or a business will lay out the economy or the um, administration of their business or their household or an age. It's the oikonomia of that time. The dispensation, the oikonomia of the fullness of times is why you would read that. And in some realms, it's a management approach that is used by any sort of business. It's set. This is our model. These are our business principles. I forget what they used to call that. The, you have your mission statement. It's sort of like, this is what it is. This is what we're about. This is what we do. The oikonomia of the dispensation the economy of the fullness of times, that God established so that Christ could then bring everything to God all in all, one in one. That is what it is. So what he's talking about here is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God used apostles and he used converted Jews to bring in and set, establish this dispensation, this oikonomia. That's what he's saying there. That was the economy of the fullness of times, a period when the consummation of all the preceding ages come together and culminate, hence the fullness of times, in one place where the, where the plan can launch forth. That's what it is. In this case, to the waiting world by the work of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What did God intend to do in this period called the dispensation of the fullness of times? The next line tells us. Read it. That he, in the dispensation of the full time, he sets up this economy that he might gather together in one all things which are in heaven and which are in earth in him. That's what he is talking about. All heavenly inhabitants and earthly into one common denominator is what he's saying there, which is why I hate denominationalism. God wants to bring it into one common denominator. Denominationalism breaks it into many denominators uh, that are not common. So, which is why common denomin uh, denomination is the way of the body and not denominations, as much as we try to uh, justify it. So this is the economy that Paul's words to the believers at Corinth were too. The economy is being established with the bride of Christ by converted Jews, by the apostles at that time. This economy, this way that the whole business is going to run from that point forward is being established by them. And it would be gathered fully into one denominator when that age wraps up. Now, uh, back to the point. It was an age where God had predestined from the foundation of the world participants, apostles, and converts from Judaism he brought in participants to establish that economy. That's what he did. It's like a president of the United States. We have a Democrat in office at one time. They have their, um, 
They have their administration, they fill their cabinet, they have all their people brought in, and then from that place, they govern everything else. What God is doing in the economy of the fullness of times is he has predestined some apostles, he has predestined some Jews to convert to Christ, that he will establish his house. He will set up his administration to do what? To gather all heaven and earth under one place, he says. All right, now read the next line with me here where uh, Paul continues, verse 11. In whom also we have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we... So he's talked about us, 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 and we, we, we. He's talking about apostles, and he's talking about converted Jews still in verse 11 and 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first, who first trusted in Christ. The apostles were the first, and those of that economy who were Jews who first trusted in Christ. That's the economy that God has set up at this time that Paul is writing to. Now let me rock your world. We've had us, 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 we, 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 all the way up through verse 12. Listen to carefully to the shift Paul makes now. In whom ye, he has been talking about we and us, apostles and converted uh, uh, converts from Judaism. And at verse 12, he now shifts. So from verse 1 through 12, we know that predestination was upon the apostles and certain Jews who converted from uh, Judaism only. It does not speak to us today. It does not speak to everybody in the world having been predestined or not. It speaks to the administration God had in pulling forth his apostles and his certain Jews who converted and or to establish his house. But now, writing to Gentiles, Paul says, in whom you, so it shifts, also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also that you believe you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You see that? So when we read it, now we can say Paul is talking to us. Now Paul is talking to Gentiles. But when he was talking about predestination, he was talking about apostles and Jews who had converted to Christ when God set up his economy to govern the church forevermore from that point forward. Understand this and you will be able to completely dismiss all the falderall of uh, God appointing some people today, predestining them to be. No, it's all in all now in his economy that he set up through predestined apostles and predestined Jews. So, in verse 13, shifting to ye's, those who are not apostles, those who are not Jewish converts to Christ, perhaps these were the Gentiles who Paul now refers to as ye, in whom ye also trusted after that you, and he says it one, two, three, four, five times in verse 13. He goes from an us and we and us and we and us and we and us. Now at verse, thing, uh, verse 13 to you, which the Holy Spirit of promise is earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise and glory. So the predestined passages have nothing to do with all people at all. And they speak of God predestining his chosen 12 that he gave to Jesus 
and or to converts from Judaism to establish his administration or economy where now he is gathering all under one denomination in heaven and in earth. It's right there in the first 13, 14 verses of Ephesians. So what does this have to do with what we're talking about when it comes to the communion that Paul is now talking to the believers at Corinth about? And he's chastising them for what they're doing. That was part of that time and economy that was part for them until he comes. And this just shows that there's a difference between the us and the converts of them and then we and you. It just shows that there's a difference here going on with Paul and his address. I say this emphatically because there are people who think that communion is a sacrament necessary today as necessary as, commu- as uh, baptism which is neither a sacrament either, in order to get to heaven, that you have to partake in a communion or a sacrament weekly, or if not, at least monthly, in order to, and Paul, that is not the context of what's happening here in Scripture. So at verse 20, Paul now gives some apostolic instruct, instructions to them, the believers at Corinth, waiting as the body, as the bride of Christ to be taken up. This is what he says, verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place. That's what we've done right here. He says, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, from everything I've seen, when you come together in one place, you're not doing it to to commemorate Christ's death. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's communion. It's the elements of of, of the sacrament or the communion. In all probability, they were meeting in a common location, which is why he says, when you come together into one place, and he seems to be saying, it couldn't possibly be that you're doing this to commemorate the death of Christ. No way could that be the case based on what I've seen and heard, what I've heard. It's called the Lord's Supper because it was held in the evening. That's why they call it the Lord's Supper. Prior to the Lord's Supper, they were eating the Passover meal. So because they had a feast prior to Jesus instituting his communion or supper in the evening, these two were combined early on in the church where they had a big meal because that's what Jesus and his apostles had, forgetting that it was the Passover celebration that had a bunch of rituals connected to the lamb and the, and the herbs and all that stuff. And then afterward, they had the communion. So what was happening at Corinth is they were getting together and they're having this sumptuous meal for some. Some people were bringing roast turkey and duck. I'm making this up. And and they were also getting drunk. So they, they, they took the Passover that the apostles got together to celebrate the final Passover of the age because Jesus was going to become the new Passover. And they got together and they were making it a big party. And then they would add on oh, and now let's do the Lord's Supper, right? So after saying this, uh, he sounds sort of sarcastic. No way, when you come together into one place, is it to eat the Lord's Supper. At verse 21, he says, for, or in other words, I'm saying this because in eating, everyone takes before another his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. He says, this doesn't make any sense. First of all, Christianity is about sharing and about being concerned of people who don't have. So you're getting together and some of you are having the roast duck and some of you are going hungry. 
And you're, and you're doing this as a preface to remembering the Lord's death, which is what it's all about. And you're remembering the Lord's death, but you're then not even showing what the Lord was all about because you're selfishly indulging in your own uh, bounty while forgetting other people have needs. Plus, you're getting drunk on top of it. And, and this is just not in, in harmony with the reason you get together to actually do communion at that time. So, uh, it's pretty revealing, actually, when you think about it. This happens so quickly and easily among us human beings. I mean, this is a group of people. Jesus walked the earth in their era. And there are people who knew him. And there are people who had definitely heard from apostles of him directly who walked with him. And yet still, the Lord's Supper of remembering his death had become a Bacchanalian festival, a time to just totally indulge and quickly, look how quickly it happens. So, and not to be unfair, I mean, the the believers at Corinth had come from paganism. And so it's going to be really easy for them to bring in their pagan ways into that assimilation that occurs with religion and people. So we understand too, we're not just picking on them as having fallen so far. It also has to do with the influx of different cultures. And, and, and so they had brought in, hey, we, every time we get together, we eat and drink. So let's do it. And then we'll do the Lord's Supper, right? And he's saying, no, that's not really the way you want to go about it. So our carnal nature to turn the things of God to the things of man, to our own self-service, even with the best of intentions. It, can, it always goes south so quickly. Moses goes up to a mountain. He's gone for a few days. And the, and it, and the Old Testament says, and the children rose up to eat and play. What that means is they got themselves into trouble because they just quickly went from one to the other, forgetting that God had brought them out there miraculously through all sorts of things. So the, the Lord's Supper had become something more. And it was not only bad in that way, but it was wounding people because there were members of the group gathered. They couldn't afford to have, bring the food or have the nice food or bring the wine or have the nice wine. And so there was division, which we talked about last week, which is the thing that God does not want because He was setting up an economy where everything in heaven and earth would be under one denomination. And there was a division. It's the sock example. Except this is the duck eaters versus the brisket eaters versus the vegetable eaters versus the no eaters at all. And pretty soon you have division within a group of people, a bride who is supposed to be uh, one whole. So the reason they probably were doing the food and the Lord's Supper together was because they took it from what Jesus did. And this was the way it was for quite a while. These feasts before the communion became known as love feasts. Some uh, churches still hold love feasts together. And the Moravian church, for example, when the Moravians get together, they have a love feast because they take it from the Bible that when the early believers got together, they would bring a bounty of food and they would eat and it was called a love feast and, and it was tied directly to uh, communion. It used to be connected to communion until about 250 uh, BC, uh, AD, Christ Christian era. 
and they separated them, probably because of reasons like this. And so then love feasts became a thing that were separate from doing communion. And from that point forward, most people do communion in the way that it's a separate event. Uh, at Corinth, these problems were, again, rudely consuming food when others were going hungry and getting uh, drunk. In, from the Greek, I consulted the Greek scholars, they say there's no doubt that Paul was condemning them for selfishly turning it into a time of excess. That the Greek um, um, suffixes and prefixes to the words say he was condemning their excess connected to... Um, and so he said, you, didn't, you haven't come together to have the Lord's Supper. You've come together to party. Really, it's kind of what he's saying. So he begins verse 22 with what? Uh, when he does that, that means he's kind of ticked. So he says, what? Question mark. You think it's acceptable to draw? <laughs> you think it's acceptable to get together, be unjust, feed yourselves, get drunk, and then tie it to the Lord's Supper? So he says, don't you all have your own houses to eat and drink in? And you notice he doesn't condemn the drinking here. He just says, you have your own houses to do these things in. Uh, uh, or do you despise the church of God, he says, do you, and, and shame them that don't have? Is this what's driving you? What shall I say to you? He says, shall I praise you in this? He says, I praise you not. This is not a good thing. Paul really throws down on them, not only for their actions, but for their self-indulgent actions tied to the communion. And at this point, he takes them into the direct teachings he received from Jesus when he went out into the wilderness for three years and was taught by him in Sinai. You got to believe that's part of the training of Paul is that he was on the road to Damascus. He had his Damascus change and he disappeared out into the Sinai Peninsula where he was taught of Christ directly. And he says, verse 23 and 24, for I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. I've received of the Lord of this. So we know this was part of his personal training. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, this is right in harmony with the historical text of the Gospels, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Obviously, the believers at Corinth had mistaken the purpose and way to partake of communion as a means to remember the Lord and his physical sacrifice. So Paul is reminding them. And he says that the reasons for communion from the mouth of the Lord himself to Paul is that he took unleavened bread. That's what he was speaking of. He gave thanks for it and he broke it and commanded them saying, take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this, take and eat in remembrance of me. Now the supper before was huge and full of tradition and history. Jesus had that with the apostles, wrapping up that old covenant. And then he says, and now I'm going to introduce to you another way. Every time you get together, is what, what the scripture says. Every time you gather in my name, do this. Break bread, drink the cup, do this in remembrance of me until I come. That's what he told them through the church, okay? Again, and let me say this emphatically, he did not want, Paul did not want this to become a festival. 
He did not want it to become a party. Uh, he wanted it to be focused on Christ's reason for instituting it and changing the Paschal meal that the Jews had had to be a focus on him. Okay? So that was the shift for them. Uh, we have to ask, well, then what about us post-return, if you believe that the return happened? Are we still to remember his suffering and the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his blood through communion? I'm going to tread on some sacred land here. Take for it what you want. Throw out all of it. It's up to you. I'm going to try to be careful in how I say it. But the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus on earth is a part it's a part of why we remember him in our daily lives by God in us by the spirit when we're walking about it is just a part of all that he did and I'm not sure why the primary part of his earthly life uh, is focused on in that commemoration that was held among the apostolic church back in the day it can't be forgotten ever. We never exclude it from our gratitude and gratefulness from the conversations that we have about our Lord. But there's something incomplete when our focus is upon a crucifix. Um, the difference between a cross and a crucifix is a crucifix has Jesus, a model of Jesus on it still. Versus an empty cross as a symbol. So there's something there's something about it in my estimation that the focus constantly on that is not taking into account the fullness of who he is and what he did and what he now stands as. I think that's just a part of the whole thing. And so I wonder about that focus. So let's just take really quickly a quick run through. We have, when it comes to Jesus, the word of God creating all things. Prior to coming in and taking on a body of flesh, God's word created everything, you and I, and, uh, and it, the whole universe. We have the word of God being made flesh, condescending below all things, and then being God with us. We have the word of God living the law of God to perfection, uh, and according to God's will for him when he walked the earth, fulfilling the law so we're no longer under it. He fulfilled it for us, right? And we have the word of God patiently abiding his life and time all the way up till he was 30 years of age. And we have him uh, living humbly. We have him learning obedience through the things he suffered. We have the word of God going through the trials of just adult, teenage, childhood life and submitting himself to the will of his Father. We have the Word of God performing miracles. And we have him, the Word of God, teaching apostles who then wrote these things down, principles that have changed the world. That, that, that in three-year period of time, he taught principles that have changed the world forever. Ever since that time. So that, that's unbelievable. We have the Word of God submitting his will to his Father, and he's saying, I don't really want to do this, but if you want me to, I will. And the word of God, uh, Jesus said, take me, Romans. And he, and, and he told, he told uh, uh, Peter, don't you think I could call down 10,000 legions of angels right now and wipe this whole thing out, Peter? You're attacking him with a sword. Put it away. Heals Malchus's ear that Peter cut off and said, I'm going to do the thing I'm, I'm supposed to do. 
and then he submits himself to the punishment on our behalf. And he bears that brutality that we do commemorate when we do hold a communion as a memorial. We, we think of his brutal beating. We think of his crucifixion. We think of the thorns. We think of uh, the thirst, the derision, being nailed to a cross, stripped naked. We think of all those things, his blood drained and, uh, for us and then buried. But then we have the victory, and that is him rising from the grave. We have God's only human son doing all that for us and then rising from the grave. And we have 12 men who followed him to their deaths, 11 of them to their deaths, uh, knowing that's what he did. If he rose from the grave, it's over to everything else. That is a pivotal event. And then he ascends into the clouds and into the Holy of Holies as a resurrected man with his body and he sits on the right hand of his father. And he says, I'm going to come back. And he says, I'm going to come back with judgment and reward. And I'm going to come back within a generation. And he comes back. And he seals that whole thing up, done, finished, by and through him. And then, according to 1 Corinthians 15, which we're going to get to in a couple months, he, it says he gives it all back to God and God is all in all. And there's one denomination and God has had his victory through his son. And he now reigns, Christ Jesus, as Lord, God, Savior, King over this realm and has forever. And when we focus only on that death, it doesn't, it's, doesn't take in the totality of who he is. Now it can, if you remember it, but I'm not so sure in the age to come that that is the focus, which it might not be why I think he, which might be why I think he said, do this until I come. Ask yourself something. This is, a, this is one of the best questions I have ever heard posed. Ask yourself, in fact, we're going to do something. I'm going to ask our live audience here to do something. I want you to verbally respond with a yes or no if you're willing. Okay? Oh, always. A <laughs> and, and to the question, when Adam fell, according to Christian doctrine, did everybody become a sinner? Yes or no? Yes. 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 Okay, we have the answer. The man Adam fell, and because he fell, all of us became sinners. The second question, which is more difficult, is if the second Adam, as Paul calls Jesus, came and had victory over what Adam did, then did the second Adam come and make all men and women righteous? Yes. yes. We don't think of it that way. The first Adam brought us all into sin. The second Adam brought us all into righteousness. That's how it works. For his bride, yes, they had to have faith that he would come and save them in order to be saved from everything. But the, the second Adam had as much, perhaps 10,000 million times more effectiveness than the first Adam. And if the first Adam brought us all into sin, the second Adam brought us all into righteousness, thereby God can bring us all into that single denomination, whether in heaven or in earth, and he has a victory through him, you see? If you see it that way, then you begin to see what Christ really did. And that's why I don't place tons of faith on it, but that's why these uh, near-death experiences, I, they have something to say because we have medical doctors and educated people who have laid dead for 20 minutes without oxygen in their brain, experiencing afterlife heaven, who weren't religious, saying it was a glorious, beautiful place. Glorious. 
And, and so we have a hope in what he has done. That is the great news of being a Christian. That's the great news of following the king who now reigns, bringing God all in all to everyone, whether they know it or not. And so when we go back to the things that were established for that first church, which is his bride that he came to take, uh, we sometimes anachronistically apply things to ourselves that shouldn't be applied. For instance, like what we just read in, first, in, in Ephesians uh, that had to do with the apostles and the convert Jews and not to us as Gentiles. So you've got to be really careful in reading that Bible and understand what the context is. Now, where the early church bride was also being put to death physically by the hundreds of thousands by Nero, they were being put to death. It makes sense that while they're waiting on the Lord to come get him, that any time they got together, they would commemorate his death. They would always remember he was put to a similar death. And many of them were crucified too, so much so that the Romans were reusing crosses because they didn't have enough to keep going, right? So it's purposeful for them to be remembering that element and that aspect, that vitally important aspect of Christ's contribution to saving the world. Absolutely. So while I think material communion is a nice expression because it allows us to experience what I call the chiropractic of religion, and we love the chiropractic of religion. And that is, I'm having my first communion. It's a, an adjustment, physical adjustment, that we get to experience here in the church. I'm going to be baptized in water. It's a physical adjustment that our physical person gets to experience, and we love it. I'm going to have hands laid on me. It's a very physical thing. Well, we're going to partake of communion. It's a physical thing. But we know in the new age that was to come uh, uh, that everything is spiritual. And so when you start relying on the chiropractic of religion, the socials too, the fellowship too, to give your stance in this world, your, your walk becomes more physically based than it is spiritually based because you are relying on those things to keep you going. You have God in you. Because of the victory of his son, you have come to him by faith, which means God moves in you and you are walking with God in you. That is a constant minute to minute experience. You don't have to have the chiropractic of religion to constantly keep you going. And that is what God wants in his body. He wants people to have direct relationship with him and not to have to rely on the chiropractic of religion to keep them Going, that's part of, that's a physical need that's being filled in my estimation. So, it was, of course, the cross that allowed for everything. But we also know from Christ going to the cross that we are to rise to new life. We know that we are to be buried with Christ. We know that we are to die daily with him. We know that we are to abide in the vine. We know that we are to bear spiritual fruits of love. All of those things, very important to that God, King, Savior that we have. So we have to ask why Jesus would tell the apostles to instruct the believers to partake of the elements of his death and resurrection only until he returned to them. And how do the instructions we read about in the age to come mess with the pra- mesh with the practices of communion? 
and there's a reasonable and viable, these are they're reasonable questions and they're viable questions. And there's nothing wrong with the chiropractic of religion because we are human, we are in the flesh. And so it is good to participate in those things, which is why here, when someone wants to do it, we do it. And I do enjoy it, uh, you know, so nothing wrong with it. But uh, remember context and remember the real purpose of everything. So at verse 25, Paul continues, speaking of the second part of communion, he says, you ready? He's already talked about the bread, right? Now listen carefully. I want to ask you before I read this. Tell me what difference you hear in your mind. Don't tell me, but rhetorically, what do you hear in your mind are the differences between what he says, the bread, and what Jesus, Paul says Jesus says about the wine. And after the same manner, he took the cup when he had supped or drank, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What is the big difference between the bread and then the wine, according to Paul? And Paul quoting Jesus' words. In the institution of the cup, Jesus says, This cup, ready, is the New Testament in my blood. Is the New Testament in my blood. He says nothing of New Testament with the bread. He says, this blood, this, this wine representing my blood is the New Testament in my blood. And uh, do you, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So Paul says that Jesus instituted the practice of consuming wine in the, wine in the same manner that he did the bread, but the words he assigned to the wine are different. This cup is the New Testament. This cup of wine is the New Testament in my blood. So this do you in remembrance of me as often as you drink of it. He makes no mention of that. Uh, so what is this all about? And we're going to wrap it up with this, and I think you're going to be surprised by this. Um, because religiously, communion has always been bread and wine. That is the new covenant, we say. The sacrament, the communion, is bread and wine. You know, and that's the New Testament. That we'll, we'll, we'll say that. Uh, eat the bread, drink the cup. Granted, both elements are part of what Christ instituted in the church bride to consume in remembrance of his death, but it was the cup that is the New Testament that's in his blood, not the bread. Now, ask yourself something. When someone speaks of a last will and testament, um, what is that? And we know that it is the will of the individual of things to have to be executed upon their death. This is my last will and testament of Sean McCraney. I want my iguana collection to go to Earl Erskine, who will oil them daily for the rest of his life. That's my last will and testament before I die. Okay? My desires my last will and testament to describe my will for to be carried out for the things that I had once I die. Now, if we go to the Old Testament, we read a Hebrew word called berith. And that word is used to describe a contract or a compact that two people, we always say this, or many people say this, that two people make. 
For instance, we have covenants. You move into an apartment complex and you have the bylaws and covenants and they say you can't put your trash out a day in advance. The covenant says you can't do that. If you sign this as a tenant of this apartment complex, you can't do that. It's part of the covenants contract, part of the testament really, and part of the will of the owners of the, of the apartment complex. So you agree to that and it's an agreement between the owners and the renters. A barith is a covenantal compact between two parties where it's a statement of definitive directives. And in the Old Testament sense, it's God, the way we describe it, is God has made a compact with the nation of Israel. He's made a list of uh, rules for obedience. If you do these things, nation of Israel, I will do this. As you do these things according to the law, God says, I will do these things in blessing you. So God as the apartment owner, uh, nation of Israel, as long as you obey your covenants, I will then go and I will make your garden beautiful and I'll mow your lawn once a week and I'll make sure the trash is collected and we'll keep maintenance up, etc., etc. In, in our minds, it's a two-way street in the Old Covenant. Got all that so far? In the Old Covenant, God said, I want you to sacrifice animals. Their blood is going to cover your sins temporarily and you're going to do it constantly because you're sinning constantly and I'm going to overlook your sins until the final sacrifice comes where I will forgive them and remember them no more. But the animal stuff along the way is just part of your contract here and that's part of this covenantal agreement of the Old Testament and the Berith. Now we get to the language of the Greek in the New Testament, which is Greek. The first word is diatheke, diatheke, and it means throughout Greek history, going back to Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all those guys, it is the New Testament will. It's the will, my last will and testament, diatheke. This is my last will and testament. The New Testament uses diatheke throughout. The word that means a compact between two people, like God and the nation of Israel, or the apartment owner and you, the renter, is, it's a worse word to pronounce, sunkathesis. Sunkathesis, I can't say it. And in other words, if we looked at the Old Testament covenant or contract between God and the Jews, the Greek word to describe what we think is happening in the Old Testament is sukathadithis. Okay? That's what we think is there. Barith, sukathadithis, that's the, that's the thing. God and man having a covenant they share, they do with this exchange. But the specific Greek term sukathadithis is only used once in the entire New Testament. It's in, it's in 2 Corinthians 6.16 where Paul says, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? What contracts between those two? Uh, what, what have they agreed upon here? You know, what's the contractual agreement? It's only used once in the entire New Testament. Sukathadithis, okay? Interestingly enough, whenever the writers of the New Testament wrote about covenants and testaments and contracts, etc., like here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about the communion and Jesus saying, this is my last will and testament is in my blood. That word for testament there, is it sunkathadesis, where there's an agreement between God and man, or is it dia, the other one? I'll just say dia. It's dia. And that is, this is the will and testament 
of God in my blood. This has nothing to do with you. This is God's will and testament. It's in my blood. Okay? Therefore, the interpretation of this last verse of ours today has Paul saying that Jesus said when he instituted communion upon his, with his disciples, this cup is the new but last will and testament of mine. Okay? And in a will and testament, it's him dictating that he wants the iguanas oiled every day. In his New Testament, it's not, and this blood is an agreement between us. It's not that at all. It's this blood is actually what I want to be in place here. Shed blood of Christ. That's his will. And where this will, where is it found? What is it based in? Jesus tells us, in my blood. That's where it's at. Because my blood, I don't know if it was a cup of blood or 10 drops or a gallon or all the blood he had in his body. Who knows? It could have been one drop as far as I'm concerned. It was enough to take care of all of it in this world. And it was his will that his blood would do that. It wasn't a contract or a compact between us and him that his blood will cover us if we're good or not. That's mind-blowing. Check out the facts. It's mind-blowing when you think about what Christ did. Okay? But here's the really interesting fact that I discovered. Even in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, when the Septuagint was written, 70 scholars writing the, Old, the, Greek, the Hebrew Old Testament in Greek, the term for contract compact between God and man is never used, ever used, once. It's always in the my will and testament sense. Always, even in the Old Testament. So when God created the covenant with the Old Testament children of Israel, he wasn't saying, if you do this, then I'll do that. He was saying, this is my will for you. He wasn't expecting there to be a, a reciprocating answer or a signature on the document. He just said, this is what I want. Do these things. That's all it was. There was no contract as in a Sudathicaeus uh, or whatever it was. There's no contract there. There is just God's will and testament for that time. Now Jesus comes along and he says, that was the Old Testament, what, what I wanted. Now I'm going to give you the new one. And it's in my blood. And this is my last will and testament that will stand forever and ever. God announces his will and man has nothing to do with it. Women, men. It is his will of the Old Testament that animals were sacrificed, that the children of Israel do these things. That is what he said he wanted. That was it. It was not predicated on whether they would or not. They just did it. They didn't have a say in it. Moses didn't say, well, can we also do two pigeons instead of one? No, it was directed. Moses did it as God said, I want it. When Jesus sacrificed himself, it was his last will and testament for the world in his blood. In the Old Testament, through the law, and included those blood of the animals. In the New Testament, it's all about Jesus' shed blood. That shed blood was enough for God to make his will final. And again, without the approbation, without the approbation uh, or agreement of humanity. 
He did it without us having to earn it. He did it without our having to sign off on a contract. He did it because we couldn't. That's the good news. Is he did it for us while we were yet sinners. He didn't do us because we earned it. That's the good news. And he did it for everyone. That's the great news. The last will and testament of the blood of his son said, I will save the world through this means. Not just the Jews. Not just believing Gentiles. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. This is my last will and testament. So Jesus tells him this, drinking of the cup, do you, as often as you drink it, remembrance of me. The Jewish nation was renowned for doing things to remember him by. They still do, to remember their history by. The seders and the festivals, and, the, and that's why the Mormons do it. They, they, just, they just took the type of the Jews and assigned it to themselves. That's why they're telling their kids, take treks. It's all the same physical thing to keep people involved in a physical religion. Jews were all about remembering these things. Jesus comes along and says, listen, it's in my blood. I've done it. As you guys continue waiting for me to return, partake of this, right? Paul concludes our study today. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Till he comes. Passover has passed into Jesus' hands. His bride is now participating in it. Until he comes back to get them, he says, do this. And this is the setting for the rest of what Paul will say next week about communion and the stuff that had to do with them there. All right, questions, comments? All right. David, speaking of Old Testament. <laughs> Hi there. Hello. This is David. Yes. From the Old Testament. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Was Bathsheba worth it, David? <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> uh, one of the things I read in some of this, uh, of the writings of, of people in Christianity, is about accepting the gift. Oh. What's your, uh, or your perspective on that? Do you have to accept a gift that is given? I used to say, of course, yes, and it's by faith we receive it, and I do believe that, but I think, um, I think it's been given. I don't know, maybe, maybe it is true. You have to accept it somehow in your own life, you know. Uh, but I don't know how that works, but it's a good question. Stop provoking. What do you think? David still... Uh, I don't think you have to accept it. Okay. So you think that, and, and you know, you're not alone in this. This is like our friends, the Pazants, have come to that point that people have it. It's done. So and, and then when they, he, they seem to believe that when, they, when we die, we'll be like, okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, when someone loves you, they have loved you, whether yeah. you receive it or not. That's, right. You know, whether you acknowledge it, let's say. Right. So I don't think that you have to receive it for that to... That takes grace even further, doesn't it? It does, yeah. yeah. It's like Gote said, but if I love you... But it's also, you know, people take it as the position of a despot. I'm going to force this gift yeah, on yeah, yeah. you. And I, I, I don't see it that no. way. But I just thought I wanted to hear what Very your... Very thought-provoking. ...perspective was. Thank you. 
Jonathan, who was David's friend in the Old Testament. Yep, and we're best friends here. Look at that. So um, I kind of want to add on to what you were just discussing. I feel recently this past week, I, I feel the true mark of a Christian is to love unconditionally without expecting anything in return. And you love people, even though you may not agree with everything they say or everything they do. In fact, it might make you upset sometimes. You still extend grace and mercy to them in agape, unconditional love, which is what Jesus has taught us. And um, there's a lot of great pastors on YouTube, one in particular, Ray Comfort, with the uh, Living Waters Ministry uh, in Santa Monica, California. It's got a ton of great videos uh, about convicting people in the sense that they, by using the word, of course, that they are all sinners because people want to deny the fact that they even sin. And a lot of them are atheists and, you know, have all sorts of beliefs from whatever religions are out there. And he makes them think that, you know, they are sinners and that the grace of God is a free gift that should be accepted. But I like your perspective, which is new to me, that whether or not they do choose to accept that free gift, they do receive it because God's love is unconditional. So I feel like the main benefit would be to um, affect people's lives in the present by accepting God's grace, it humbles them while they're still alive. Amen. And, you know, helps them grow that way. Very good, Jonathan. If we hear from Saul next, I'm going to run out of this building. <laughs> no, it's Rachel. Another biblical name! <laughs> How was the favored one? Um, I just wanted to add to the conversation in that... Um, in the Bible, it talks about the gates of heaven being open. And obviously, in this life, we're all in different places of acceptance of God. But my view has come to be that those gates are open because of what Jesus did. And when you die, the most beautiful, overpowering love that you could ever even not even imagine will overpower you. And you are most welcome to receive that love. Some people may be so angry they can't receive it yet. I'm sure they might hang outside the gates or maybe even run away, but God is a pursuing God and he loves all of us. And if you run away from those gates, I'm sure he will pursue you. I am too. Beautiful. That is the God we worship in my opinion. Oh, yes. sorry. I don't have a big biblical name, Sean. <laughs> Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is just a simplistic question. Um, verse 24, it says, take, eat, this is my body. You point out the new covenant with the blood. I point out the brokenness of the body Ooh. and ask if, if it, does that get extended to the broken covenant or the old covenant or... Ooh. I would I would ask is there is there expounding on that or wow, context I, for that? That's three pages of writing right there, brother, because that's that's really good. Yeah, in the flesh, it's broken. Yes, yeah, it's really good. 
Love that. Both with the Old Covenant and even with us when we receive the blood. We we're broken in this world. I love that, Jason. Thank you. It's Tammy. Um, just, a, just two quick comments. When Rachel talked about running away, um, it made me think of, I was reading this week about the prodigal son and that example, that he ran away, he left, and he suffered without that love from his father, came back and was immediately accepted, just the same. And so um, kind of what Jonathan talked about of it's there whether we accept it, when we accept it or not. And then we've talked in the past, I mentioned once, Danny, what's the book that, that we have, Do or Don't, the done? Um, so yeah, thank you. What's, his, what's that book by? I can't remember the author's name right now. But in there he talks about grace and compares it to Christmas morning and um, the parents who bought the gifts for their children and they're there. And how crazy it would be if the children woke up and said, well, mom and dad, we can't open this gift and accept it until we first clean the house and do all our chores and do, 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 do. No, it's already done. The gift is there, free for the taking. And the same with us. It's Amen. not about what we do. And, and also, if the child does that, they go without that gift all that time. And they, couldn't, they could have been enjoying it all Christmas Day. Yeah. But they chose to not accept it yet. But the parents aren't going to return it to the store. It's still there. It's just when we choose to accept Very it. Very good. And then the child thinks they earn the gift. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sean, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. I, hi. I have a Another question. biblical name? Yeah, I know. You want to hear from Jonah? <laughs> <laughs> Does this end? <laughs> I, I have a question that I was going to ask you um, after. Yeah. But I could see myself telling you that and you saying you should have asked me Good. live. So, so I'm going to ask it. Um, change, switching gears just a little bit. Something you said caught my ear. You talked a little bit about the symbolism of the cross. Yeah. And what you described reminded me a bit of a Latter-day Saint view that the reason why they don't display the cross because they focus more on what happened, not on the death, but on the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So the question I was going to ask you is maybe a little personal. When you and I first met 100 years ago, whenever that was, you used to wear a ton of crosses. Mm -hmm. And I've meant to ask you this several times, and I never have. I notice you don't wear a cross anymore. So. Oh, I do. Well, but I mean around your neck, you know. No, this is more permanent. Okay, so that's, that's a, okay. Yeah. That's what that's I want to know. Thanks. Yeah, it's more permanent and less cumbersome, and I don't eat them when I'm sleeping and gotcha. all that. Snag them. Snag all right. This is Mary, and we know that's huge. Hello, Mary. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what I'm wondering is it said, take this till I come again. So if he came in 70 AD, do we take the sacrament? I don't Optional. Think so. Optional. Great memorial, but not mandatory as religions tend to make it. That's why we don't do it weekly, Mary. And the whole thing has been ruined now because what's your name, sir? My name's uh, Barnabas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a close friend of Paul's. Yes. Uh, when. When I read what David was talking about, going all the way back, I hear uh, the acceptance isn't the gift because the gift was what you said when Christ, he made us all righteous. Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned a couple weeks ago, returned 
what I believe the world to its Edenic state. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, try to engage people in that. No. <laughs> it's hard for them to get their mind around. Uh, but for me, that was a gift of God. I just, I just knew it when he made when he purified me mm. <clears throat> but when the acceptance i think that people have to do is the presence of god mm. not the gift when he because he, he moves in when you accept christ as your savior he moves in and then he just dwells there waiting for you to give in to accept mm. his will and hear and use his gifts mm. because if you don't accept it if you don't if you fight against your worthiness and you fight against your uh, compliance for that matter then you don't think you're worthy and you can't hear the voice of God which comes as a still small whisper so the gift has been given but it's just will you let your will go so God can work right beautiful Ken thank you and to Michelle yeah I'm my middle name's Marie that's sort of biblical. fine and dandy okay. you qualify um, <laughs> Um, what I was thinking, though, with respect to that whole question of acceptance, is I think what we really have to be careful of is refusing the gift rather than be mindful of accepting it all the time. Just be mindful of not refusing it. Mm. And otherwise, it's there and we get it. Beautiful. Probably if we refuse it too, but maybe not to the fullness. Wonderful. Thanks. Really appreciate you guys all commenting. Oh, one more. Daniel. <laughs> so just quickly, for me, it was more of a realization than an acceptance. Ah. When I realized it was an aha moment, it was comforting, peaceful, joyous, more than just saying, okay, now I accept this. Yeah. Didn't have it before, but I know that it was always there for me. I love that. Realizing, realizing. And that's our job as believers, in my estimation, is to help people realize what they have beautiful it's come full circle this is david again the uh, an example is we're all alive here we've been given the gift of life mm. we didn't choose it and we might not be happy with it but we still received it got it beautiful one more larry I'd like to say that I am thankful that Jesus Christ did die on the cross for us, took our sins upon the cross with him, so we don't have to buy animals nowadays and have to sacrifice them because I wouldn't be able to afford it. <laughs> Love Gaylene. And, and Kenzie, this is Ken again. Kenzie wants to bless her new baby. Oh! Well, let's do it. Afterward. Can we do that? You guys have a few extra minutes? Let's do it like the Mormons do it. All worthy Melchizedek priesthood holders are welcome to come forth. Really? No wonder you're so nice. Come on up so people can see it. And you're going to hold the baby up, you know, like they always do? Oh! You got to do that. Get on camera, Kinsey. Wait, come on over, little one. What's her name? This one's Kendall. This one's Kendallin. Oh my gosh, you guys are killing me. Kendallin and Kinley. Kinley. 
Kenzie and Ken. Uh -huh. And her husband's name? Kenyon. 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 Wow. So are you going to do it? Sure. All right. Join with us, you guys. Father God, we lift this child up to you that you've given to us to show us your love as a demonstration of your complete forgiveness of our sins because we're, without you, we are unworthy. Kenny. Kenny. <laughs> Kenny. Kenny's right there. We thank you for all of your gifts, the greatest of which is your son. Kenny. We ask you to... Uh, give us what we need to raise her in your <laughs> to raise her in your name to glorify you God we pray in Jesus name the Prince of Peace Amen Amen <laughs> Beautiful Ken all right, let's end with a prayer. You guys, thanks for contributing, everybody. I mean, it just when you have a thought on your heart, it means something. They're, they're good. They're, they're as good and better than mine. And when you share, we all learn. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this little baby and, and for life. We're grateful, like, like David said, that we, we all have been given life. We didn't even receive it. It was given to us. And uh, we decide kind of what to do with it. And so we pray that you'll help us exit from here and equip us to better present um, what Dan said, what Danny said, that, that people can just accept that this has happened for them and we can help facilitate that and they can be free in you. And in that freedom, Lord, we know comes such love and su such freedom from our own selves and our opinions and our needing to be right and our arguing and our and our uh, hurts that we carry with us when you've forgiven us for everything past present and future that allows us to forgive everybody past present and future and to have patience like you have patience with us and to forgive like you've forgiven us so bless us now as we exit from here lord we pray your special blessing on a uh, family of teenager matthew thorne who committed suicide this week we comfort them and, and, and find peace. Barbara McGuire, uh, colon cancer. We pray you'll bless Barbara. We pray you'll bless Barbara, uh, who lost Scott a number of weeks ago. We pray you'll bless uh, Teresa, who lost Thane uh, a month or so ago. I, I personally pray for the Hatch family, friends of ours, who uh, their, their dad uh, passed away this last week. And um, all the pains and sufferings that we all deal with, we just lift it up to you, and we pray that you will give us wisdom. We pray that you'll give us individual strength to overcome our weaknesses. Keep us strong in the commitment that we have to uh, walk with you. And send us forth now with your spirit, forgetting the things that are not of you, remembering everything that is of you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow. Her name again? Hui. Hui.
Uy. Welcome. We want you to learn one English word here. Bagel. Very important. Thanks, guys. God bless you. Santa.